Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. I'm here with A.B. Katz. A.B., say hey. Hey, great to be here. And we are here with our very special guest, Ash Fontana of Zeta. Let's get started. Ash, could you give us sort of a brief background of uh, how you to where you are right now, starting Zeta? Hmm. It's longer. It's 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 a longer path <laughs> yeah. than what you're probably expecting in this answer. I guess I started pulling apart computers and companies. Um, weirdly enough, both when I was pretty young, um, and wasn't sure if those interests would ever sort of align. And the reason I was doing that is everyone in my family runs their own business, some large, some small. And I helped them with all the IT stuff because no one else knew how to do it at that point. Um, and then, you know, at the dinner table, we would talk about boring things like accounting accounting, and collecting debt. And I just sort of had these parallel interests for a while. That led to starting a little company at high school, like one of an early website sort of directory company. And then I went into investing. I started out in investment banking and advisory to publics and research, then went back to private equity and some advisory. So then... But then jumped back to starting a company, which I started with Jeff, who's now at Founders Founders Fund. Yeah. And then so went back and forth between investing in startups for a while and then ended up in this hybrid arena, which was AngelList. Um, And that's when it started to sort of coalesce, like what sort of investor I was. And how did you end up at AngelList? Did you know Naval previously? We used AngelList in 2010 and we were introduced to Jeff Clavier through AngelList. He invested in our company and then Naval also put a little bit. So he was an investor in Jeff and I. And we, so we knew him a bit through that. And then when I when we sold that, I think Naval sort of put out a call for help. It's not under here at least. And I responded and said, yeah, I can help out and did what I could for a month or so and really liked the vibe. Really mm-hmm. liked the team. And Morley just saw a huge opportunity. Right. They weren't collecting or handling any money at that stage. So it was just sort of my introduction, great social. And saw that opportunity with a lot of ideas flying around. And when did you know hey, I want to start my own fund. Yeah, so that's, you know, in a sense, most good things are come about by chance and opportunity. But in a sense, what I came to know in my time at AngelList, to continue from the previous answer, I was investing and starting companies and jumping back and forth. And at AngelList, I coalesced like who I was as an investor. And I realized, you know, if you put investors on a spectrum, on the one end, you've got traders, you know, very short term, very sort of pretty numbers driven and, and very quick bets. And at the end of the day, it's over high volume. Mm-hmm. On the other end, you've got like a deep value investor, very yeah. concentrated, does a lot of research. And each decision has a lot of integrity. I realized over time and at AngelList, I was very much the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the public stocks I hold personally, if you look at what I was always interested in, if you like accounting, legal background, I much prefer a more concentrated approach. So moving away from AngelList made sense um, because that was a very high volume approach to investing. Um, so I'm, that's why I sort of started thinking about having another platform. That cool. That's possible. And, and what is it that you've liked about a more concentrated approach to investing? Yeah, it's two things. I mean, one, each decision has more intellectual integrity. If you only make a few decisions per year, you're putting a significant percentage of your fund behind them. You have to be very, very thorough. You have to have a very strong process. And I really like that. You know, it's intellectually satisfying um, and it also plays to my strengths in terms of skill around process and valuation and markets. The other thing is just relationships. You develop much, much deeper relationships with founders. You feel like you have a little bit more of an impact. You're mm-hmm. just 
you're just more in sync with them and can really help them. It's very, very hard to help an early stage company if you're not heavily involved because things change so quickly. If you're checking in every month even or every two months, there's, there's a huge information gap between the founder and there's not that much you can really offer. And so I like being a lot deeper than that I'm doing. Gotcha. So you're, you've decided to become this concentrated investor. You decided to start a fund. We'll talk about mm-hmm. how you started the fund in a bit, mm-hmm. but let's talk about how you chose your uh, investment thesis. Because yeah. you guys are focused. And how did you choose your focus? Very good question. At a high level, it was about thinking about, well, what does technology, what is technology? Technology is a lever for human beings, right? And where is it at today? Well, a lot of what we have is essentially a fast calculator or a database. Um, if you think about most of the applications you use, they're not much more than that. And so we thought, well, you know, if our job is to allocate capital to, to technology companies, you know, what can we start allocating capital to that pushes technology forward as it provides more of a lever for things? And that is software that helps you make decisions, not just sort of present something. And even starts making some of those decisions for you. And so what does that practically mean? It means a software that uses data to learn and then start making predictions. Now, there's been a lot of really interesting things happen. You know, computation is much cheaper than public data sets. There's a resurgence in research interest into self-learning algorithms and software. And all of that was coming together as well. And so we just sort of thought, well, fundamentally, what is the point of investing to give humans a better lever? And we think that sort of software will give us a better lever. Then there was also the bottom-up reasons to do it. One is my partner, Mark, has an incredible track record in this space. And two, I'd started a company in this space and sold it before. So we had some operating experience in various, like specifically with this company. Um, but it was both. It was both sort of the, the top down, the bottom up. Can you take us through a little bit more about the company that you built and the, the role of data and machine learning within that company? Oh, sure. It was sort of before the machine learning age and before a lot of that technology accessible. But um, Jeff, uh, my co my co-founder Jeff and Ozan and I, um, we essentially got a bunch of data from social networks when a lot of that data started becoming more available through Facebook's API and whatever else. And we focused mostly on geolocation data, but not just, and then melded it with data from huge loyalty programs, United, Hill and Virgin, and those sorts of intercontinental and stuff, and merged them together to sort of create an offer engine and a, a rewards engine that looked at people's behavior outside of their loyalty program. And how... Um... Let's go back for a second to your starting your fund. How, how did you find your partner? Yeah, Mark. We actually met through someone else in the venture industry, and Mark had already started the fund, to be clear. He, he'd raised, he'd done the first close on the fund, he'd made some investments, he'd warehoused three of his other previous investments, and he'd, he'd really got it up and running. And he'd been doing that for about a year, but he hadn't launched it. And he was still you know, looking for another partner and going to do a second close and whatnot. And I met him sort of, not a full year in, like maybe half a year in, and we got to know each other really well. We live across the road from each other, so we spent a lot of time <laughs> together. I looked at a lot of companies together and whatnot and, and went from there. I mean, it was really a case of aligning firstly on the thesis. Like we both just believed there's no point in investing in anything not this sort of software, not intelligent software. We really aligned on that first, and there was a, a real mind melt around that. And then it was just getting to know each other's investment style. And what skills did you bring to the table? Yeah, it was... Um, How do you compliment? Yeah, so Mark and I are really different. I mean, you look at us, you talk to us, we're really, really different people, but we're very complementary in lots of ways. Yeah, skills, for sure. Uh, I mean, I have more of a, a product manager's perspective in the mobile era uh, and the social era, whereas Mark worked on, you know, he worked on the Spark Station at Sun, mm-hmm. like back in the day with Eric Schmidt and Bernard Kozler and Kim Palese and all those people. 
And so he had more of a hardware perspective. So we have different operating experience and then obviously very different networks. You know, Mark yeah. has been very active and contributes a lot to the MIT community. Um, he's got a lot of different networks and my networks from AngelList were very different. Right. It was sort of very early stage founders that maybe over the next couple of years at the point of starting the fund, we're going to raise their next round and raise a serious institutional round. And that's where. We're- and you're also Australian, which lends you a certain gravitas that I imagine you found irresistible. Yeah, look, I'll play, I'll, I'll play that accent for a while longer, <laughs> I think. Yeah. It makes some things easier. You just came from a place, AngelList, uh, yeah. whereas, you know, they call themselves, and are rightfully so, the future of venture and, mm-hmm. and have a very strong software focus. Mm-hmm. What, if at all, is the role of software in, in building Zeta uh, yeah. in the short term and the long term? Yeah, so in the short term, what we've done is we use a lot of AngelList data, mostly for signals at the top of the funnel, so to speak. So whenever a company is created on AngelList or pops up on AngelList or is hiring on AngelList, various signals, again, within our specific area, which is intelligent enterprise software, we have ways to be alerted of that. Um, So we use that. We use some of their workflow tools. They actually built a bunch of tools for incubators to process applications, which is sort of a, it's quite a cool way to look at company profiles and look at structured data. So I can imagine we'll be using AngelList data for, um, for forever. You know, really, it was less a it was less a tool and more of a realization about where venture is going at AngelList that has really informed our approach at Zeta. And that is, and a lot of firms are doing this, and I don't agree. I don't think you should really try and innovate on like core platform service because AngelList is going to win. Um, I'm really biased, but I really <laughs> do think they are AngelList and Product Hunt now, especially because they have the best. They have more candidates than you can amass as an individual firm. They have a lot of early stage investors, a lot of customers are there, a lot of corporate acquirers there. There's a lot of networking services that AngelList provides that it's going to do better than anyone because they have it's a bona fide networking product with really, really good product design and engineering behind it. And so what we don't do with Zeta is we don't try and innovate on any of You're not trying to be Signifier. Um, well, that's different. I mean, I think they're focused on talent. That The focus on talent there is helpful for sure. And I can't speak too specifically to their strategy. Yep. Um, but what I do think it has informed is that we're just very service focused, right? Like we're super concentrated. Each partner partners with very few companies at a time. And we're really, really involved. And I think, you know, our approach is innovate on service, innovate on like how you behave, how much you know, and what you bring to each meeting with the founder. Um, and don't try to innovate on platform. That's that's how it really informed us. Yeah, I, I really like on the website how it says you work for your companies. Uh, we do. <laughs> Sometimes very late into the evening. <laughs> yeah, to tell us about that uh, service piece and you know how, how you most like to engage with uh, your yeah. portfolio founders. It's a good question. And I think, you know, we're not the only ones who have this attitude. But, you know, when a founder partners with the fund, they should really know what they're getting. And in our case... We just promise you get a partner and you get a partner for everything, right? Like each partner is sort of a full stack in a way um, in that they know how to recruit, they know sales strategy, they know go-to-market stuff, they can help you on product reviews. You know, they have a very broad experience and we're really excited in January we'll be announcing a new partner that even further broadens our experience as a group but also as an individual. She's amazing. So we, you get a partner. And you get all of that partner. You don't get some of that partner. That partner doesn't push you off to someone else when you want to hire someone. They just look to their own network. They don't sort of plug you into someone, give you someone. And and, and again, it goes back to the information gap, right? Like if you put a founder in touch with someone to help them with a press release, 
that person's not really going to be able to articulate. They'll offer some tactical advice for sure on contacts, but they're not going to be able to articulate the company as well as someone who wrote the investment memo, who spends time with the company every day, who pitches the company constantly to customers, recruits. You know, if you get someone, fob them off to someone to help them do an interview, you know, that person doing that interview is not going to be as convincing to the potential candidate or to the potential recruit as an investor that's got a lot of their money in the company, right? Like an investor sitting in front of a candidate saying, this is why I believe in the company and this is why I put all my time and money into it. That's really convincing. So the, the, it's it's less about innovation. It's more about community. Earlier you mentioned, you, you spoke about the intellectual integrity that you mm-hmm. have when you only make a few investments. Mm-hmm. How many investments a year? I really don't like to think about gotcha. pacing. Gotcha. Um, I don't like to think about investing in terms of pacing because it's not about doing everything. It's about doing a few good things. Right. It's, it's more like a, a bottom a floor rather than a ceiling sort right. of question. I, I won't be difficult though. Like <laughs> in practice, we probably make half a dozen. Um, we probably work with, work for about half a dozen. Can you walk through your process a little bit for, for evaluating yeah. deals and if it you know if it differentiates from the standard process if you have strong philosophies? And- yeah, it is a little bit different and it's different because of our focus. So, you know, we tend to get fairly deep into the product and data strategy with a company very early in the piece because this is all we focus on. You know, they don't have to explain to us like what machine learning is and we just jump straight into it. And then after that, something that's different about our process, I think, perhaps not to every firm, but to most, is all the partners meet about an opportunity really early, like usually after the first or second meeting, and we form hypotheses. Like, what do we need to know from here for us to really want to partner with this company? And then we go and test those when we call customers, when we have subsequent meetings with the company, and then we regroup at the end. So we try to sort of form good questions early in the process and then go and answer those questions in a fairly systematic way. So I think that's something a little bit different. Otherwise, it's all the usual things. It's just all about nuance. Like we place a little bit more emphasis, I think, on customer references and industry experts than we do evaluation or the founder's personality. I don't know. I don't know what how other people work necessarily. We we'd certainly place a lot of emphasis on customer and try to call. And indeed, like we wouldn't enter a company if we can't talk to some. Right. It doesn't mean they have to be a paying customer. It doesn't mean yeah. they even have to have a product in market. We've invested pre-product plenty of times, but. To be able to talk to someone who can say this is a burning problem mm-hmm. and this solves it. And when you're making investments, I know you're mm-hmm. a big fan of writing down your thoughts and yeah. as a way to remain disciplined. What mm-hmm. what makes a great investment memo? It's all about clarity, and you have to be very very clear on you know your principles, like why you believe this is a good investment, and also the risks you're taking on. Right, like you have to be clear on your principles, like what's what's why will this be big? Like, what are the fundamental things changing in this market? What are the secular trends? What is the one thing about this company's solution that hasn't been able to be done before? What have they done that's really special? Why will this be big? What are the principles behind my conviction I have in this company? And then what are the risks? What what work do we have to do to make it? You know, there can be all the tailwinds in the world behind a company, but there's, there's a lot of de-risking points. And what are we going to work on? And what are we going to really tackle as a team? How can we uniquely help them tackle it? And then what are the next round's investors going to work like? What are we not going to do? And what risks are going to remain at the end of our period of working with the company? And will that be enough? Will it be sufficiently de-risked for the next investor to come in or for the company to be self-sustaining at that point, making enough money um, to not need any money? Yeah. So you're about to bring on a third partner. Yeah. Uh, and I know you're thinking about you know the future of Zeta. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit more about what Zeta looks like in, in five to 10 years. Are you, are you scaling mm-hmm. up and... 
you know, going upstream? Are you launching a growth fund? Like, what does that uh, become? Well, never say never. I will say I don't believe in opportunity or growth funds unless you have appropriately staffed them with look very good at investing at that stage. So I'll say that for now. You know, what does growth look like at a venture firm? Not much, to be honest. <laughs> in, our, in sort of our model, which is a very service-driven, very focused model, you know, we're not the sort of firm that's going to hire 100 people in a year. We'll hire one person at a time and we will grow as quickly as we can find people to find great ideas. Mm. Um, and it's hard. Like, you know, the, we've been looking for a third partner for a really long time and talked to a lot of people and we've found someone we really believe. Um, and I think she's going to do a fantastic job. And then we'll bet in the culture. You know, adding a third partner will change the culture and we'll bed that in and then we'll start looking at it. So we will keep moving forward, but there's a certain... Um, speed limited, which is right. like, you've always got to be revisiting your strategy. Does it make sense in the market? We've got a certain strategy now that makes sense today. And if we have to reset that strategy, that will, we have to do that before hiring someone else or before increasing our assets. And then what is our culture? And like, how, how is our culture affecting how we interact with founders and how we interact with the outside? And is there some change we have to make there? And if so, we should make that change for bringing us. Mm. Um, so very I don't know, that's sort of a bit fuzzy, but that really is how you have to sequence things. Right. Otherwise, you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious because I'm thinking of expanding my team right now. And mm. part of what we were thinking about is, are we shaping to a role or are we just looking at the person and seeing how they could, could, could fit in? So walk us through this yeah. process of how you've, you know, you talked to a lot of people. Mm. Why this person and why not so many of the others? Yeah. So our number one thing in hiring is compliment. When you're, our job as investors is to make great decisions. And a lot of the value you create is in the decisions. And, and they need to give you a lot of compliments. Exactly. Yeah. You want to... <laughs> I got that up first. Yeah. Exactly. That's my verbal tick getting to me. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, you need... To make great decisions, you need a lot of different perspectives around the table, mm-hmm. right? And you need, you need lots of people from different backgrounds, people from with different product experience, different, different operating experience, different networks, different generations, different influences and just different mental models around the table. So we're always looking for someone that is the most different from the last person that right. we brought or the most different from the current partnership, the two separate. That's our number one principle in hiring, compliment therapy yep. gotcha. with an E. <laughs> Perfect. And so I'm curious because I'm sort of three years behind where you're at right now in terms of fun, the fun yeah. being started. What do you wish you knew three years ago when, yeah. when you were getting started that would have changed your approach? It's an interesting question because as an investor, you can never have too much knowledge about markets, about customers, technologies, whatever else. In, in many ways, and I don't feel this is disingenuous, I don't wish I knew anything a couple of years ago. Like, I don't think I could realistically answer that question. I do wish, however, I knew more people and yeah. had different relationships um, with different people and more relationships and more types of people. You know, I can go on and on about what those were, but just having... Having different mentors and having different LPs. You know, well, can you be specific? You know, is it? I wish I built my LP base. I wish I built my mm. base of founders who've been very successful. I was. What specific networks would have been most helpful, and how would you have gone about building them? My partner has has really developed developed this for us over many many years. But your great networks around strategic market has been really a distinct lack of the valley and. We're lucky to have a really good network, but it would have been great to know, you know, great networks around engineering managers, uh, great networks around people in the cutting edge of our field. You know, we know a lot of people in the cutting edge of our field. They're, you know, people that are leading groups at Facebook, leading groups at Google and whatever else in, in artificial intelligence machine learning. But the field is moving so fast that 
you just cannot know enough people to help you figure out what's going on time and understand if any gives right at the, at the right tipping the market. So I'd say those three areas have been really important for us and there's been a distinct lack of, um, of people in the world and by uh, sort of extension, people we know. As I said, I think our networks are great there. Always help right. them more. For beginning investors, what yeah. do you find is the highest leverage way to, to learn? I'll give an answer that I don't think, um, I don't know if it'll be that popular, but LPs. Having an LP that's been investing in venture funds for a long time, incredibly valuable. Our business, running a venture firm is a business like any other business, like mm-hmm. running a corner store, like running a construction company, whatever. There are, there are tricks of the trade. There are templates to use to understand certain things like portfolio construction and valuation and whatever else. There are best practices in reporting. There are best practices in accounting. There's a lot of things that I'm starting to say that sound really boring, but are absolutely crucial to getting right as you as you run a business. And LPs, great LPs, are, have a lot of experience in seeing what works and what doesn't. Also in hiring, um, also in making decisions about what the next fund should look like, what your LP base should look like. LPs are a great resource. And then otherwise, people that have just been in a very, very, a couple of years enough, it's like you know someone who's been there. Mm-hmm. Given your focus on intelligent enterprise software, mm-hmm. How has that market developed in the last few years and what, what changes have you seen? Faster than anyone could have. It seemed to us really obvious to focus on this in 20, 2013 and it wasn't obvious to a lot of people a while to explain to It even took a while to explain to someone, certainly to other investors. Now it's very obvious to a lot of people. You know, funnily enough, I think we were definitely the first. I think we're still the only fund focused on internet enterprise software. At least that's what you know, that's what other people have said. And But it is becoming... Very obvious to a lot of people, partners at funds are spending on this. Some other funds will probably pop up soon. It's moved faster than we all thought. And I think that sort of speaks to the the nature of the technology itself, right? The benefits from building a self-learning system compound um, and become very, very obvious. If, it's, if it is actually a, a useful system, it'll become very obvious that it's useful to inside delivers to people. You see the, um, you know, all the examples, Facebook's ad survey and they become they become you know Google's assistant product. They become very good, very good. And so we think we've seen the field move fast. You know, continue the uh, amazing levels of investment by corporates, um, both tech and non-tech. More and more data becoming available. More and more like, computational power become cloud is amazing stuff. Um, so all the fundamentals are just moving faster than. And what do you think are the key components to mm-hmm. build an intelligent enterprise company that are different than yeah. a standard enterprise business? You know, from day one, it needs to be structured, that, right? Like just building a SaaS product is very different to building an intelligent SaaS product. You need to be very thoughtful about your data strategy. You know, what data are you collecting that's unique, that's going to be able to train something that delivers some unique insight to a customer? It's going to have to have, you know, where do you get that data from? Do you get it from your customers? Do you build like a tactical product that collects data? Do you have an agreement with your customers that you're able to share data across customers? Um, do you make deals with certain customers where they give you specialized to some amazing data set there? Do you form a partnership with a complementary debt provider like our com- company we work with, Clearbit, has a partnership with Segment. There's, you know, that's a very com- for their customers, the companies. Um, so you've got to be very, very thoughtful about your data strategy from day one because it takes a long time to get a data set that's clean and usable and labeled and whatever. And then you have to start bringing on force to be able to get self systems. And that talent's hard to get, you know, structuring it. Data science or machine learning team is very different to structuring. They need different tools. They're different people. They come from backgrounds. They need different research systems. Um, so you know, doing that is very different. And then marketing as well. Having a product that 
gives a customer a prediction or a suggestion or even makes a decision for them, that is uh, sometimes a bit of a marketing, a product marketing challenge and also general marketing. What degree um, of confidence do you show in that recommendation? How do you present that to a customer so that they believe it, they use it, and eventually they love it? So there's lots of different elements that really have to be um, thought about from day one. Yep. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about data sets. Have you seen any sure. uh, surprisingly unexpected data sets that help solve important and valuable problems? The answer to that question is absolutely and in every vertical, right? It's just every vertical, there's always some interesting data set somewhere that you can find. Um, you know, we see in the medical imaging vertical, people finding data sets, you know, by partnering with hospitals, but also partnering with teleradiology, outsourced tele teleradiology companies all over the world, and also by like just getting it from governments and countries where regulations are a little bit more lax. People find these data sets of medical images ostensibly a very sort of sensitive thing in all sorts of places. One of our companies is works in the auto insurance and they had to they had to form a really big partnership with a big customer to get access to hundreds of millions of images of crashed cars, a funny data set to think about. And they had to work really hard on a partnership. There's you know there's a lot of interesting public data sets that people aren't even using. I mean under the Obama presidency the set of uh, data sets released like well over um, there's a lot of good stuff there. I mean, th th there's no end to where you can find it. But I think the more interesting point is not cool stuff out there. It's that you have to be extremely focused as a startup. If you're going to build a system, industrial, commercial significance and with industrial, commercial level of accuracy, because you have to feed it like a very specific to train up a system to get that. Um, and that's the only way that you'll beat any focus from there. And do you think in the long run, you know, that clean mm. labeled data set will be a moat for businesses? In what cases will that be the case? And, you know, in other yeah. cases, if it's public data or multiple players have it, you know, yeah. what defines who, who wins? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Um, and it is, I think the key term there is long run. So long run, no. I think just having a unique data set is probably not enough. It's very rare that you're able to get a legal agreement to lock up a customer's data set for 20 years, which is the timeline you have to be very rare you get that sort of legal agreement. It's very rare that someone, you know, if you find some interesting data set, whether it be on the dark web or creating some cool scraper or whatever, someone else is going to be able to find that soon enough. That's not enough. And so, and that's why we don't partner with companies that just have unique, that, that's, that's defensible and that is a mode of forms, but it's not probably not one that's going to be around for the long run. That's why you have to start compounding that mode or that source of competitive advantage with an intelligent system built on top of that. Because intelligent systems um, learn very quickly and they learn, the point is more, they learn more and more quickly over time so that your competitive advantage you get from that data set in the beginning gets better and better. So in the long run, no, that's not enough. But that's why you have to start thinking your system on. Have there been any companies outside of your thesis that have tempted you to broaden your focus? Many, many, many. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, you know, before Zeta, I partnered with some great companies. Like Canva, which is a design tool, I really love that company. Would love to be spending all my time with it. And I see companies like that all the time. I see companies in food and like nutrition and those sorts of areas that I love. I see all sorts of companies. You just have to make a choice, right? Like you, you absolutely cannot be. I don't think that useful to entrepreneurs if you're not focused on some area such that you are really across best practices. You're really across the. You're really able to speak the same language. You know, even in our focus area in intelligent enterprise, like it's 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 essentially impossible to stay on top of the research. 
it's happening so quickly. Um, so even that is like barely enough. Of, um, so yeah, we get tempted, but our thesis is broad enough that you know we can be opportunistic at times. Um, but it's narrow enough that we can have some relative. And have the developments in machine learning opened up any new commercial opportunities that mm. you're excited about or new approaches that weren't possible a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's a, it's a good question because that's essentially the thesis of the whole fund, right? Which is that some of these self-learning algorithms and systems and technologies that are coming out now, you can do things with data sets that are locked up in companies that you just couldn't do. So yeah, just pointing to our portfolio, you can build um, you can build databases of all the products in a store just by putting cameras around the store. Um, and you can understand like what products are going on and off the shelf, are they in stock, out of stock, what customer picked them up, this company called Focus they've been doing. You know, you can under, you can automatically process a car and short track. Um, you can do all sorts of really interesting things. Even around something that you know, people thought couldn't necessarily get that much better, which is language training. You can make all sorts of adaptive systems where humans and machines work together um, to learn how to translate. So there's just there's endless opportunities. Again, it's just about focus. I mean, I think you could go to essentially any industry today um, that has some level of stored data and work with them to to start helping them make decisions, make better decisions or just automate decisions they're already making. Uh, can you tell us about your investment in Domino uh, Data Lab and, yeah. and why you did that? Yeah, Domino is an interesting one um, because in a sense, it's not like a vertically focused data machine learning company, but it is crucial to the ecosystem. Um, why we did it is an interesting question. You know, when I first met Nick, uh, we sat down at about 5.30, I think on a Friday and didn't stand up until about 9.30 or 10 o'clock. <laughs> he just speaks and thinks with such clarity that he's able to take you on a journey that's that is very logically progress you along a journey that's like 10 years into the future and explain what's going to happen to all of the current companies, other new entrants, incumbents, whatever else, what's going to happen to all of these companies over the next 10 years, which is a remarkable thing to be able to do and a remarkable thought process to be able to construct. And he was absolutely able to do that. You know, we'd spent a lot of time in this space and he was able to do that with, with such a clarity that we've never seen before. And Nick and his co-founders, Chris and Matthew, are, are all incredibly clear thinkers, perhaps because they worked at Dalio for a while, um, for quite a while. So that was the, a very big reason why we made that investment. The other was we just saw the gap, right? We are in there talking with Aetna, with Allstate, with Tesla. We're in, we're in there talking with these companies as potential customers for some of our portfolio. And they're, they're telling us that they have no tools, right? There's no like Atlassian. What Atlassian is to software developers, there's, there's not that for data scientists. And it is a completely different problem, right? Versioning code is a very different technical problem and workflow problem to versioning code and data, right? If you're a data scientist, you're running your model over a data set at a point in time. If you just version the code and not the data, then no one can reduce that experiment. And so you need a new tool, a whole new set of tools to do that. Um, and we were just hearing that from customers. They were all trying to make their own system and they were just cobbling it together and it wasn't very good. Uh, and Domino had that had that system. So it was very much driven bottom-up from the clarity of the founders' thinking and the, the real need that we heard from customers. Um, and then a number of other strategic decisions they made were really at work with. Um, they're very, very focused on reproducibility, which it turns out is very important when you're a regulated entity. You have to show the SEC what you have to show the FDA what you have for your chemicals, whatever else. Your reproducibility is really key, and they're really focused. And then a whole bunch of other fundamentals. They were making 
Bye. Nice, nice. It, as you mentioned, there's a small handful of players in the space, which mm. there seems to be in any promising sure. space these days. Was, was there anything in particular that you think mm. gave you the conviction that they were the winner at, at still relatively early stage? You know, it came from customers and it came from the team again. So coming from the team, you know, we were able to really articulate why a number of other companies in the space hadn't necessarily made decisions that were going to lead them to more customer interest over time, That would, why a lot of the competitors had cornered themselves in a part of the market where there wasn't much pricing power. For example, you know, a lot of the competitors are selling to people low in an organization that don't have much purchasing power. And therefore, if you're talking to those customers, you don't have much pricing power. Um, whereas Domino had just focused on the top end. They were very much talking. You know, what seemed to most like a small market company with data science team pretty significant. And there aren't that many, there weren't that many of those companies in the world, right? Like Dave has a bunch of data scientists and a few other really big companies. And Domino were just focused on them. And there was an open question among a lot of other investors, I think, at the time. Well, how many of those companies are there in the world? We just saw it as being inevitable that all companies would have that sort of um, but others sort of disagreed. So anyway, by focusing on the top end, they've really differentiated themselves. Again, by, by working with all your existing tools, they differentiated themselves. They weren't trying to reinvent a data scientist's work. They were just trying to really sit on top mm-hmm. of all the other tools. Um, that was key. And then, you know, it's just what we heard from customers right. um, about how the team was working very hard to, to meet their needs. You know, they had an on-prem solution, right? No right. one else wanted to do on-prem. That's important as well for a lot. We talked about a couple of companies you've uh, mm. you've invested in and had conviction on. Can we talk about a time when you were close to conviction, mm. but you passed? We don't have to mention the specific company, sure. but can you walk us through when you when you're close to conviction and you pass? What are the reasons you end up passing last minute? It's one of a few things. If and last minute meaning like after you perhaps talk to some customers, you've checked out the model, you've checked out a lot of things that the company has sent you but then you might sort of go off list or you might spend do another session with the founder. It's one of two things that always happens. For us, it's, you know, you, you just realize that, you know, while there may have ostensibly been a really good data strategy and plans to make an intelligent system, that was actually very unreal. You know, they're not, the data set is not of the quality that it needs to be or it's not as unique as it was or that actually, that actually you just bought it from someone or that it wasn't, you know, or their, their learning system wasn't actually stable over time. It was a bunch of, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very well thought out. Or their learning system was actually trained on a really small set of data. So if you throw it an out-of-vocabulary name, so to speak, uh, it didn't work. It offered a prediction that was completely spurious. So often it comes down to, like, some very detailed questions about their data set or their machine learning models um, that were purported to be very good and it turns out they don't actually work that and therefore the level of efficacy for customers over time is not going to be as high so that's one reason um and another thing is just you know what do the founders want to do you know, we don't want to push our strategy if someone just wants to create a vertical SaaS workflow product that's fantastic and there are plenty of companies out there that will do incredibly well doing that for a long time to come but we're not the right investors and so you know while someone may come in and say one thing in the beginning over time, you might realize, well, that's not necessarily what they want to do. And even if they still want to partner with you, you know, you don't want to be disingenuous about these things. Like, we don't want to be the sort of investors that push a strategy on someone again and again and again. And then if they just if they don't want to do it, you can't make people do it. Um, and so, again, around strategy and founders and what they want to do, and you discover that. Over. Um, but, yeah, usually at that point, it's coming down to a fairly specific question. 
um, that you only discover deeply. And what role does valuation play mm. when you're making seed investments? That goes into questions of portfolio construction and how many companies you're in and what is the exit environment in your space and whatever else. So I'll, I'll try to... Tell us how you think about that. Tell us everything. <laughs> well, that's a complicated one. So I'll answer Abby's question first and then I'll get into portfolio construction more generally. I, I think you just have to give yourself a chance to make money at the seed stage, right? And that means staying very disciplined. Um, if you get in below a certain price, um, there's a, very, a much higher chance of you making money. And that price for a fund at our stage is probably like a less than a $10 million to be pretty poor. You know, all, all of the companies we invest in are very talented people working there. They have strategic data assets. They usually have customers and strategic relationships. They've got real intellectual property. So in the very worst case, they're going to be acquired for something more than that. Um, so you never like to think about the downside, but thinking about the downside means that you probably have to be investing your price. Um, to always exceptions. We've absolutely invested above that price. We always will consider that for repeat founders, for companies a little further along, for whatever, whatever. But I think as a seed investor, you should you should think about price. A lot of people don't. Um, uh, you, you, you can't separate price from risk. That's the point to make. Um, and so it, therefore, it's very silly at least have a very strong view on why you're paying a certain price and stick in a certain range all the time, but you just have to view portfolio construction. I mean, I think the best place to start is with what you can't change. And so what you can't change about the world is the exit environment for the sort of company you invest. And the exit environment for us being enterprise only um, and being these companies with some sort of data or, or intelligence uh, systems advantage, they... Most of the exits happen around the low nine figures, right? Either companies have bought really early aquahires and whatever else, not going to make any money out of that, that's fine. Um, but beyond that, companies get acquired for low nine figures on very strategic acquisitions. And then if they go beyond that, they obviously become independent public companies. So if I think the way to start with portfolio construction is look at the exit environment for the sort of companies, look at the probability distribution of exits and work backwards. If most of your companies are likely to exit for X, how much of the company do you need to own in at that point to return your fund at like a 3x, um, which is obviously a high number of gross depending on your fees? And so if you start with that exit environment, you go, okay, um, I have to own this much of each company to get to a, a 3x net. Then you start actually getting to the real questions of construction. So to own this much of the company, I have to initially invest enough to get this much of the company. Then I have to reserve this much capital to get this money. So for us, that's one to three million dollar initial investments, and two point five to three times that in reserve for future investments. So let's say roughly that's five million dollars over the life of a company. And then another thing that I think is worthwhile to think about is diversification. If you're very involved in a company and have a lot of control in a company, twenty companies is probably diversification. So that's why we got to our fund twenty times five, a hundred. If you're not so involved in a company and you don't have much control and you don't put as much effort in diligence and you're taking a broader approach, then that number obviously needs much higher than you need to have a lot. Um, so, you know, I think you start with the exit environment, you look at that, you look at how much you need to own, you look at how you're going to get that. And it's sort of portfolio constructions, sort of like pricing in a weird way. Like it, in, it's related to everything. It's related to your investment strategy. It's related to the stage that you've chosen to focus on and why there's a gap in that market. It's related to exit. But how you get involved in Let's talk about the approach because I've taken sort of yeah. an opposite approach, or, or not opposite, but a way broader approach yeah. uh, given to my skill sets and sort of an SV Angel approach. Let's compare. I think Dave McClure has this line where he mm -hmm. thinks a broader, even more diversified approach is 
safer mm-hmm. a little, but the upside is capped, but you're also not going to get as, as big of, so it's safer to get it two, two or three X, but you're not going to get it. Yeah. 10 X. Is that accurate? Well, we don't know if it's accurate yet, like empirically, um, because we haven't seen enough data on how the strategy over a very long time. Two, it doesn't matter if it is accurate because that's not the only truth. Another truth may be, and I think this is proven data, that if you have high quality investors that are highly skilled, they can change the sort of luck skill balance in the equation and they can actually influence the outcomes of companies. They can get very, very good ones taking it with a very constant. So it may be accurate. I don't know. Uh, even if it is accurate, it doesn't mean every other approach is wrong. Right. And then the third thing to say is there are ways you can sort of do both. I mean, ways you can it depends where you're investing. Like if you're just investing in consumer, maybe you have a completely different approach to it. That's certainly our average. In enterprise, it's pretty easy to tell pretty early on if there's a market for something, if a company has a product for it, and you should make your bet then. With consumer, that's incredibly hard to tell right. at the pre-product stage until it's in market. But then once it is in market, it's incredibly easy to tell. So then companies are valued very highly. Um, so we sort of play at this. So will the fund size increase and how do you guys think about that because some stay the same over time yeah i mean again i think it just comes back to how many good ideas we find and how many people that's also a function of how many people we have to find good yeah um if and you know the third thing that affects it is the strategy right right now we think there's a real gap in the market for enterprise software entrepreneurs so to sort of differentiate between enterprise and consumer for both types of founders it's pretty easy these days to get half a million to a million dollars, which is enough to build a product. It's much cheaper to build a product these days and whatever else. Now, if you're a consumer entrepreneur, you build your product, you put it into market um, with your half a million, and if it takes off, you're off to the races, so to speak, and all of the great funds might you know, yep. lead a $10 million rate. And if it's not, well, you shut it down. Um, with enterprise, you know that's enough to put a product into market, but a lot of the very good funds at the next stage, like the $10 million sort of round stage, they're not really going to look at it unless it's got 100K of monthly revenue, right. and decent churn metrics, mm-hmm. and revenue quality. So there's sort of enterprise software entrepreneurs, we think today, are sort of left in a dead zone where they need a little bit of more money to actually go to market. They need to hire some sales and marketing people, not 20 outside sales reps, but like maybe someone who's strategic does generate some inbound and then some inside sales people or account managers to close it. And you need a couple of million dollars. So in a sense, growing or building an enterprise software company is a little bit more stepwise. And we're at that second step, you know, which is usually the first institutional round, two to five million dollars to take it to market and get to a really good point. You know, be mm-hmm. able to get some really good logos to get to 100k a month in revenue right. and to show some expansion cases. Really give the next stage of investors confidence. You just mentioned logos, which is interesting. I was about to ask mm. brand. Um, mm. Do you think of it's important for Zeta to have a big public brand that everyone knows about in the startup world, mm. or do you think it's important only the the people in your field know about, or the people who need to know know? Yeah. How do you think about brand? I think about brand in lots of different ways. Or I should say we think about brand. To answer your question, I think the most important thing is the people in our field, right? We only want to partner with people working on a certain type of problem or a certain type of company that has a certain type of competitive advantage. So it's only important that they know about us. But obviously, it'd be nice if more people right. know about us because we think everyone's eventually going to win. Yep. Um, there's a broader conversation about brand. Um, so I think one thing to say is, as a new fund, and you know, maybe this is something for you to think of, you have to be focused in your messaging. It's just like a startup. For a little company to get to get press, they, 
they're competing against like a sales yep. boss, they have to have a really interesting message. It has mm-hmm. to be very different. And I think it's the same with funds, right? And not only are there hundreds and hundreds of seed funds today, yep. but all the existing brands, and they're not asleep at the wheel. They're doing a great yep. job, especially a lot of them on, on branding and marketing. So to get attention in that environment, excuse me, very difficult. Um, so what are you guys doing them? in terms of messaging? Or how are you thinking about it? Yeah, so we do a couple of things that are a bit different. Um, one, you know, when we think about brand, we think about the brand of Zeta for a really long time. And so we are not creating a constellation of personalities. We're creating a firm of people, investors. Mm-hmm. And so we don't blog under our own names, yep. for example. Um, we're not doing things to create um, personalities out of everyone in the fund. We are primarily people that work for our companies. You're not on Snapchat. Uh, I don't have a problem with it, but, you know. <laughs> It's yeah. not. It's not how we choose to go about right. it. You know, you'll notice we don't have a byline on any of our articles. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not saying this is something we'll do forever, but it's something we're pretty clear on now. Because you know, from an LP's perspective, they've invested in a in a firm right. that they want to be around full time, and that firm's part of that firm's asset is its brand, and we want to concentrate the 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 value creation in that brand and also protect it over time. But two, it's sort of once you have a constellation of individuals, harder to stay focused in your messaging and you're more likely, it's more likely that a constellation of individuals each get drowned out than one focused message breaks through, that doesn't break through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want one focused message to increase our chances of breaking. The other thing we do, which is a little bit different, is that we we just completely refuse to talk about anything that's not in our space. We don't write articles or speak on panels or whatever else that are just about, you know, the inside baseball. You'll never see an article on our website. It's like why you should you know, do a price round over a convertible note. There are enough people in the world writing yeah. about that, and we won't do that. You, you will see on our website some pretty wonky articles, right? Like you'll see stuff about approximate computing and hardware acceleration analytics. You'll see stuff that's like very specific around positioning a machine learning company as opposed to another company. Yeah. You'll see something very specific about like how do you maintain value in data assets, like why you shouldn't sell your data. You'll see a lot of very specific content. And that we find that, you know, that... That doesn't get us on the front page of yep. publications, but it really matters to the founders that are trying to get to know us. You know, mm-hmm. at that second meeting stage, that's when that becomes impactful. Right. Where do you overlap and where do you differ both in focus mm-hmm. and in philosophy from someone like Jason Lemkin at Zaster? From what I know of his strategy from the outside, we're definitely at a very similar stage in terms of really helping companies go to market. You know, where we differ is, again, we're focused on companies that have a different source of commitment which is their data and the intelligence system on top of that to compound that. And he hasn't sort of been as um, articulate about that or isn't necessarily as focused on that. And that also affects how we help companies and what work with, you know, we really help them form data partnerships, hire that first data scientist or machine learning, form that team, put the best systems in place, like understand the economic market, these predictive features. This is a lot of different things we do well beyond SaaS. And we wrote an article about this in TechCrunch called Growing Up in the Intelligence Era, which sort of highlights the difference between like a vanilla SaaS company and a company with a data intelligence. I'm sure that we'll overlap in a lot of things, but at least that's how we think about the difference from the outside. Mm-hmm. We're very much focused on a similar stage, I think. Right. One thing that's interesting is you have background investing in both private and public mm-hmm. markets. Mm-hmm. I've seen some firms sort of combine, you know, both private and, and public. Yeah. Do Is that of interest to you? Are there synergies yeah. there? Do you think you will ever do that? So speaking personally, it's absolutely of interest. I mean, I think a good investor is a good investor. There's a lot of specificity to stage, and I'm certainly edge-focused, but there is a lot of commonality 
right? Investing is fundamentally about process, about like being able to break down. It's a very centrifugal function rather than a centripetal or product management or product creation. So I think a good investor is a good investor. I think you learn a lot in the early stages about what might be threatening to later stage companies. I think that you have networks that give you access to information that could be beneficial in analyzing the strategy and the pricing and whatever of later stage company. You know, obviously you have a capital base and you provide a different product to your limited partners, which might be beneficial to them or something. Or to mm-hmm. So personally, I think it's very interesting. To be clear, we have absolutely no plans to do that. Right. Um, and we'd have to really expand the team and do lots of different to do that. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely not on the cards today. But yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. And I think that looking at the funds who have done that, you know, you know Sequoia do that. I think that's public. Um, Social Plus Capital <laughs> definitely do that. And that is public. They... I think it makes sense for a lot of funds to do that. Given your time as a, a public markets mm. investor, any lessons learned or any favorite investors that you think, huh. you know, they can help you as you go about investing in seed companies? Yeah. Um, lessons learned that are directly transferable. I mean, it's basic skills. It's like basic stuff around how do you do a customer call? How do you get information out of customer? How do you, find market information about how big certain markets are and who's pricing and whatever else. You know, how do you do basic valuations of a company? A lot of those, the former are really valuable at the seed stage, like calling customers. You know, valuation and whatnot, it's not that valuable at the seed stage. But, you know, I think the thing I learned most, I, mean, I had the pleasure of working for the global head of research from Macquarie Capital, David Ricards, and I think I just learned most clarity of communication, which wouldn't be evident in the sentence I just said. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just being really, really clear about what assumptions you have around an investment and what's changing, not changing. What what is a cat? What constitutes a catalyst for change? Be very very clear about. Um, so that's probably the thing I, I learned most at that stage. And what might transform? You asked also about investors I look to. I like reading more uh, some of these writers that uh, write about investing at a, at a meta level. So like uh, Bernstein, you know, he wrote a book, The Gods. Um, Michael Mabison is. Uh, very good at macro stuff like you know, how do you understand um, how do you understand capital the competitive advantage I find a lot of those papers you know one just very satisfying to read I really liked it the two somewhat applicable you know uh, people like Rappaport I'm reading expectations I think that is actually a really ripe area for early stage investors to understand the because the, the principle being well as an investor you only make money if you can sell an asset to another investor at a price higher than what you bought it for right and a lot of that is to do with fundamentals, but a lot of it is to do with expectations around the fund. And you just cannot ignore expectations as a, as a feature of your process. Um, that's what the expectations he wrote with Madison's about. Um, I think that's actually really interesting. I can go on, but they're the couple that I've been reading. Really. Have you seen expectations for machine learning companies rise? And how, <laughs> how, how have you dealt with it becoming, quote unquote, hotter space? Yeah, very pertinent question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, but as always, you know, the the devil's in the detail. You just have to really differentiate between those companies that merely have .ai in their domain name or machine <laughs> learning on one of the slides or you know, reframe one of the team members, data scientists, not be. You've just got to, I don't want to be demeaning, but you've just got to differentiate between the companies that have it on the um, So yes, there's a, a lot of hype. It makes our job very different, but whatever, that's our job. Um, we just have to differentiate. Has do those expectations affect prices? Yeah, you know we've seen price increase, but at the seed stage, people may still are pretty disciplined, right? There are so many unknowns that you just can't be too silly at the seeds. Most sophisticated investors um, are not 
getting too out of hand at this stage. Um, occasion, and, and most good founders will want a partner. So it turns out if you're dealing with better founders, they're, they're savvy to this as well. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have a certain level of expectation that they know if the heat comes. To start to wrap, because we're nearly yeah. sitting in a pitch black room. Yeah. <laughs> We talked early before we even put the mic on about the lack of education mm. in venture. Mm. And as we sort of begin this foray into interviewing experts, mm. I'm curious, what do you wish people understood more about venture? Or what would you like to talk about on this in future interviews? What would you like us to, to yeah. ask specific investors about? Or what do you think is the opportunity in, educa- in venture education? Yeah. And I'm thinking of starting a conference around this, as boring as it may sound. But there's that Picasso quote about like, Art critics talk about form and function, whatever else, but artists talk about where to get cheap turpentine. <laughs> I want to know the stuff, like the cheap turpentine stuff. You know, I want to know, like, as an investor, um, how do, where do you get like a cheap outsource CFO, or like, right. where do you get uh, industry data really cheaply, or like, what templates do you use for analyzing this, or you know, what calls do you ask on customer references? Like, just the nitty gritty stuff. The funny thing about early stage venture firms is they're very small and they're made up mostly of like people who are sort of lone wolves in a way. And so you don't have a water cooler and you don't have professional development like you do in other industries. You don't have that sharing of knowledge in the profession. We have had that with a lot of like really great people that have been in the industry for a while, blogging more and some people writing books, like Venture Deals is a great book. The Business of Venture Capital is a great book. There's been some, but I, I like the nitty gritty stuff. And I've been to a few sort of dinners and mini conferences where people have shared those tips and tricks it's just it's the day-to-day of being invested that i'd love people to share more about that i would love to help or be yeah. involved in putting on that uh, that event because yeah, it sounds it. very pertinent yeah awesome and any message to the entrepreneurs or people thinking about taking that dive into the world of smart enterprise try to it's 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 not that different to like how you would think about starting an enterprise company which is just find really real problems by spending a lot of time in it right you know, just talk to a lot of people in a given industry, figure out like with respect to intelligent enterprise company, figure out like what data do they have that they just cannot use and they have a hunch that there's some value in that. Help just just find someone with that sort of that sort of problem or that sort of, and that sort of hunch and help them and see if you get some predictive value out of like even a small running a small data set. And if you do, then take it the next step. Build a, add a few features and run over a bigger data. And if you're starting to see some returns and deliver something back to them, it doesn't matter if it's like not the fanciest like machine learning model in the world. If it helps them use the data better and make a decision that's incredibly, and there's some return on that for them, then you've probably got to come. So you know, my advice would be start small and start low. Well, AB, Ash, uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for chatting with us today. Yeah, unreal. Thanks, guys. Cue the awesome outro music. 